Storymakers. Welcome to Storymakers, the podcast that delves into story craft and the creative life. We are your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And I'm Angie Powers. And we are so excited to be joined today by writer-director Anthony Lucero. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's funny, I'm still working on East Side Sushi. You would think I'd be done with the film by now, but it is, I'm sending it to uh, distributors, to mm -hmm. three different distributors, and they all have different requirements for for the film. And, and it, it comes down to not just the film itself as a file, as a QuickTime file, but they have, uh, you know, the, the legal departments in, in uh, every company has their own requirements. So it, long story short, I've, I've spent the last two months getting my deliverables ready uh, for release for this March. And, and wow. I apologize if I sound nasally, I, I may be sniffling through this podcast. I, I have a bit of a cold right now, so I apologize. Well, you sound great to me. I um, I do know about the uh, the deliverables piece. I've heard a lot that that can add in a surprising amount to your budget at the end as well. So I hope that hasn't impacted you too much there. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. I, I, but, you know, when you hear that, and I, I knew that ahead of time, you should budget for deliverables, you should budget for post-production, you should budget for film festivals, all that. Yeah, I, I knew that. But when you have a very low ultra low budget film you can't you can't put aside money for the future like that you have to spend the money you have right now to get the film done and then i'll deal with the future later and that's how i did it and i'm, I'm sure that's how a lot of other filmmakers do it as well it's just you kind of just have to find a way to to finish it yeah well i mean you've got so much momentum going on with with your festival run it seems like you should be able to get a little extra help from a somewhat broader community at this point hopefully to yeah yeah i'll, I'll be fine <laughs> yes <Yeah>, good <laughs> um well i wanted to say like you know as i as i was mentioning before i i went on um i looked you up i did some research i looked at your earlier short films um and one of the things that I'm interested in with like short films is you did a marvelous job of being very succinct in both of them. And I'm sort of struck by the, you know, I think the ballerina is, is kind of this amazing little nugget of story where you have a person in a wheelchair. Um, and if you guys can, these are available on Vimeo and on YouTube. So take a minute and look up Anthony Lucero, uh, the ballerina, um, or I need my mocha and you can see both of these online again yeah, we will link to them from the show notes yes and um but I I was interested so you make a those are kind of a one very short very deftly done um and poignant and yet when you do something larger you need to sort of figure out how to string those together so I was wondering how you moved from the sort of storytelling process for short to a storytelling process for your feature script. Yeah, it's complicated and you don't know how to do it until you start doing it. You actually don't know how to do it until you start editing the footage together. Then you, you'll you realize whether you've you've done a good job or not because uh, I'd never written, I mean, I'd, I'd written a couple of feature screenplays, but you can't, you can't test them, right? You don't know if they're gonna work or not. So. Eastside Sushi was no different, although I'd spent a few years writing it and rewriting it, uh, it we, I still didn't know whether it would work on screen. So, and I'm not sure if any filmmaker, no matter how skilled they are, will ever know if it's going to work on screen. But uh, so, yeah, very different between short films uh, and, and feature films. It's, 
you know, some people have said you could do, you know, maybe 10 short films and string them together. And it's kind of a feature, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not, not really because you have this overall arc in a feature film, you know, the first act, second act, third act. Um, <clears throat> what is similar between short films and feature films, at least for me is you do have a beginning, middle and end in each scene in a feature film. So in a short film, whether it's, one minute or 10 minutes long, you have a beginning, middle and end. And I saw the correlation in my, my feature screenplay. I always had a beginning, middle and end to each scene. And that's kind of, so it, I did sort of handle it like there are many short films within this big feature, but you still have to account for the overall arc, which gets, you know, very complicated. That's why not everybody could or does write screenplays. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I noticed, um, you know, I, I have often heard the phrase that editing is the last rewrite of the script. And um, as someone who's done editing, I was just wondering if that experience helped you maybe get closer to uh, what you were going to end up with since you, you had a sense of what would be edited. For sure. I, I've worked most of my my career has been as an editor uh, first as, you know, cutting commercials and the documentaries and some narratives. So I think it's an advantage if you are an editor in that in, in the writing process, it helps, but definitely when you're directing, as I was directing, I knew I was getting certain nuggets in there that were good. And I was piecing the scene together as mm -hmm. I was going. And I, I don't know, it's definitely a skill that I think a lot of editors can have if they direct. And, uh, and it's definitely, you, you are writing the film uh, in the editing suite. And with my script, the, the final product is, I would say the first half of the film is structured very different than how it was on paper. Oh, interesting. It, yeah, it, it was on paper at work, but then when I put everything together, it just wasn't gelling. The Juana, the, the lead character, her, her arc just wasn't quite working when I was editing the film. So I, I just took these scenes and I started swapping them um, all around. Um, not, not arbitrarily, but just I, I kind of knew like, well, maybe if I put this towards the front, it would make more sense. And I did re-edit the film. So it's very different from the screenplay and, uh, and it works much better. So yeah, you just, you just never know. I want to follow up on that. So you, you moved some scenes that were going to be later earlier, right? Right. And so were, were you kind of um, ramping up the stakes there or establishing more about the character? Do you know what, what specifically was happening when you made those moves? Yeah, Juana's character was supposed to be, in the beginning, she's a bit meek. And as she grows, as her journey continues, she becomes a bit more stronger, uh, speaks up a little bit more until the very end where she confronts her boss. Um, and that's close to the third act. So I wanted to make sure uh, Juana, her, her, her level of, um, you know, sternness, kept growing. So that's why I started to swap some scenes around that didn't quite work because, uh, you know, it, it just felt like, oh, she's a, she's a little bit more shy here. Maybe we should move that closer towards the front. And it, it's not that simple, but uh, those were some of the changes that I did make. Uh, and, and it did help with, with her character. It did make it 
that arc again made it much more stronger, much more evident. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because it's sort of like you know I, I think I often think of plot as needing to be somewhat linear, but when you think about the uh, situations that bring out your character, the choices they make, it's it makes sense that you would look at where is she emotionally and how is she responding, and she has to do that only in certain areas of the film because otherwise we aren't actually seeing her make any forward movement. So she's kind of going backwards or. Right. Exactly. I mean, a a more specific detail, which if you've seen the film, you would know, but there was a scene where Juana comes home. It's late at night and her father and daughter are watching a zombie movie Mm -hmm. and she gets really upset. And the way it was scripted was she just lays it into her father and she's really upset. And that's how we shot it. But the very last take, I asked uh, Deanna, the lead actress, I asked her, can you do a version where it's toned down, where you're tired, and, you know, just give me a take like that. Ended up going with that take uh, where she's exhausted when she comes home. Again, that scene was supposed to come later when she's more assertive, but because I wanted to move that scene closer towards, uh, you know, the beginning, I used that last take where she's more deflated and defeated and just tired so that that's um and that's not always you you don't have time on set to always do those alternate takes Mm -hmm. uh and you need a fantastic actor luckily diana is amazing like that where i could ask her to do do two different versions and she just can Mm -hmm. and if you have time you definitely should do that yeah that's you know good foresight on your part to ask for it and uh (laughs) yeah yeah um I, I was I read an interview with you in the SF Weekly, where you mentioned you talk about observation and research, and you and the article said you did sixty eight months of research on sushi, but I'm guessing that was six to eight months, or was that actually sixty eight months? It was um, six to eight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So how did that information end up feeding the film and your story? <laughs> yeah, that was. Well, you know, as, as a writer, that's for me the uh, the funnest part is the research. I enjoy, I just love doing research, no matter what it is, whether it's another culture or another religion or, mm. you know, people that make food, whatever it is, I, I enjoy that aspect. And uh, so as I was writing the film, I had to stop because once I decided that this character wanted to become a sushi chef, I had no clue what it took to become a sushi chef. So yeah, I I did stop writing. And I think I had written maybe, I'm going to guess maybe 15 pages of that screenplay, which is pretty much the point at which Juana uh, goes into the sushi restaurant. So at that point I thought, okay, I don't know what it takes to become a sushi chef. Let's stop writing and, and start doing the research. So yeah, I didn't write anything for a good six to eight months. And in that time frame, I hung out in Japanese restaurants. I talked to sushi chefs and I, I took sushi classes myself just to immerse myself in it. And just, you should, because it makes it so much easier as a writer to pull from all this information that you have. So yeah, that's, that's accurate. Six to eight months of just research into, into sushi. Uh, and, and, but also before and after, well, actually more after that, I was still doing more and more research as I was writing. So, but a, a big core of it was, yeah, between six to eight months. And so did that, any of that research kind of draw your story into an unexpected direction? Like, was there something that you learned that changed your story? Oh, plenty. Uh, 
like the types of knives that they that they use, you know. And then that later comes uh, as a little bit of a spoiler, but you know, someone <laughs> want a, a, a carbon steel knife, and you know these are and the way that you they slice the fish, and so Juana has to learn that. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, like when I was taking that class on how to make sushi, there you have to have your hands uh, damp. Not too wet, not too dry, and or else the rice will stick to your hands. And as I was in that class, boy, the rice was just all over my hands. I couldn't get it off. And that ended up going into the film where Juan is making sushi at home, and it's all over her hands. So for sure, and a lot of the research that I did definitely was incorporated into the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I just – one of the things that I was really struck by was um, <clears throat> how – we pick you picked moments to show her progression um also on her skill level but also in 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 her character and looking at change so changes that how we understand um a character's movement and that sounds that's silly changes under how we understand change what i meant was you have details where her skills shift and they kind of reflect also her development in certain ways like as she gets better like she comes in and she's got skills and she kind of demonstrates that she's got a certain amount of cooking skills when she's like chopping up the was it like lettuce yes Um, and so Mm -hmm. so she's demonstrating right now okay i have certain amounts of skills um but then we see like the eating scene at lunch where she's not even sure really how to pick up with the chopsticks and she throws it into her the sushi into her mouth uh, with her hands and so that was one place where she starts to do create mastery over these things. Um, so it was just interesting to see what you picked as a detail to focus on to demonstrate the change she was going through as a character. And I guess I wondered, did you have intentionality when you were thinking about those kinds of details? Yeah, I mean, the chopsticks seem pretty accurate. If I were to think of somebody like Juana, somebody who uh, sells fruit, on International Boulevard, would somebody like her know how to use chopsticks? And I don't know. I, maybe everybody that sells fruit along there, maybe they do go to Japanese restaurants and and eat sushi. But I, I don't. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the thing is, what uh, I was always fighting with was sushi is much more common than it used to be mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, everybody eats it. Little kids eat it. You know, it's and I didn't start eating sushi till I was about 25. So, um, but yeah, you know, choices like that of her progression of learning the chopsticks, it's all, it, it's in there deliberately um, because she wants to, she, Juana is a type of person that wants to, um, she needs to command, you know, every, if she dives into something, she's going to command it and she's going to learn as much as she can about it. That's mm-hmm. her. And, the she in writing for Juana, she had to work in food in in some way, shape, or form, and she had to know food. She had to like food, mm-hmm. and it makes that arc of her becoming a sushi chef much more plausible. She had to have those knife skills ahead of time, mm-hmm. uh, or else it would have been you know a, a six-hour film of her learning mm-hmm. how to use a knife and and all that. And um, so. Yeah, there's a backstory to Juana that is uh, very necessary 
for the character for her to become a sushi chef. So, um, yeah, her working in restaurants, her becoming a good chef, uh, all that um, just makes it more plausible for her to become a sushi chef. Yeah, definitely. I, I write mostly prose, you know, narratives, novels, and things. But, um, but all of this is so fascinating to me, and I, I've also used some of the kind of basic lessons of screenplay structure in my in my writing. And I want, and I mean, this we're having this great discussion that's about character and sensate detail and research and arc. And I'm wondering if you, especially with moving scenes around and everything, I'm wondering if you had sort of plot points, if you used, you know whatever Aristotle's incline or different people's seven steps or whatever, you know, if you, if you used any of those kind of structures. Yeah. I, the, the types of films that I love or that I would love to write are ones that break the structure, uh, like a Pulp Fiction or 21 grams, uh, films that just, they're kind of all over the place. That's the film's, that I want to write, but I knew for a first feature, nobody was going to fund that. Nobody was going to latch on to it for a first film. If it was all over the place, it would look like uh, I just didn't know what I was doing. So uh, East Side Sushi is, uh, it's a classic three act structure. Uh, and I, that was deliberate. Um, and I did have plot points for sure. Before I even started writing uh, any kind of dialogue, I had a full page of, for the first act, there was probably, I would say, 10 beats of Juana does this, 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 10 beats. And it was on a, a chart that I made. Act two had about 20 beats, go from here to here to here to here. And then act three had another 10 beats. So it's just easier for me to write the full screenplay. Once I know that we have to get from this point to this point, it's just easier for me to start writing the dialogue between those two points. Uh, but that's how I did it. And that's how I write all of my stories. I have to start with some kind of a grid of plot points first, and then I can go and start doing the dialogue. Did you go back to that at all when you were editing and moving scenes around and things? No, that I, I never went back to it. I mean, once I wrote the screenplay and was happy with the screenplay, I never went back to that chart again. Yeah, I like to outline and keep things organized. I have a hard time keeping big stories in my head. So if I don't have a, an external thing to refer to, it's harder for me to kind of hold the whole story. Um, right. I think I'm the opposite. I, I think I have, it's easier for me to hold everything in my head. And then once I feel it's too much where I've, I have the full story, then I start putting it on paper. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. I just, I work it out in my brain. I mean, I'm writing all day, no matter where I'm at, if I'm walking or whatever I am writing in my head and I'm keeping a log and then eventually at some point it's, you just get it out on paper. So, yeah. That is an impressive skill. I just have to say, like, I will think of something wonderful and forget it by the time I've come back from walking my dog. So, yeah. um, that's awesome. Well, well, I think it has to do with laziness, too. I'm too lazy sometimes to break out the computer and start writing in yeah. you know, the screenplay software. So uh, it, part of it's just a little bit of laziness as well. Um, <clears throat> well, I think that's effective. Um, it were, I mean, I loved this story and I loved, you know, I we used to live in Berkeley and we're up in Sonoma County now, but it was really wonderful to revisit uh, at our little local theater, uh, the East Bay. And it was such a wonderful character in East Side Sushi. And um, <clears throat> I was just wondering, like, as a filmmaker, as you're thinking about location, uh, 
what are some of your main goals when you think about like well setting as a whole because there, of course setting is more than just location but um it seems like this is almost like a, a love postcard to oakland and um so i'm just wondering what are some key goals for you as, as you're looking at setting as a whole yeah it, it kind of was it was supposed to be a love letter to oakland and some people feel it is and i do feel it is it's just that originally Oakland was supposed to play a bigger part in the film and I was going to show a lot more b-roll of Oakland because it's so diverse and I wanted to show that on the screen this diversity but but not just to highlight Oakland which is a very cinematic city but mm-hmm. I wanted to show that this this is where this is where these two characters live a Japanese sushi chef and a Mexican immigrant. They're both immigrants, but I wanted to show the diversity of Oakland so people know that, okay, it's plausible this, that these two cultures could meet and, and collide. Uh, but uh, yeah, so anyways, all that was in the screenplay ahead of time, but had to get, get cut out. Uh, and as far as locations, I, you know, there was a lot of scenes where I had these Steadicam shots in the screenplay where the shot would go from the front of the restaurant. It would go over the uh, into the sushi um, uh, where the sushi chefs work mm-hmm. behind the counter and it would follow the, the camera would follow all the way through the kitchen to Juana and back around her making the sushi it coming back out. I wanted to do just these these one takes to show mm-hmm. Juana making the sushi coming back out into the restaurant. And because of a budgetary reasons, and we shot in three different uh, Japanese restaurants, mm-hmm. all those those uh, beautiful shots had to had to be cut. So, but I was thinking about this ahead of time, which is very very difficult. Once we uh, decided that we had to break this up into three different restaurants. Visually, I had to rethink, okay, how do these characters talk to each other? Because originally they were supposed to go from the back of the kitchen to the front. And now, so it becomes very complicated when you're on set and you're trying to restructure how these, the blocking of of the actors. Uh, So that's something to take into account before you start shooting, before you start shooting. Uh, But we, we did this every day. I mean, every morning, me and Marty Rosenberg, the DP, we would look at, the screenplay, which was the old screenplay, which had my old layout of the camera. And we would say, okay, we can't do it like this. How are we going to do this? How are the characters going to move? And you just have to do it quickly. You have to decide this within mm-hmm. 10 minutes and tell the crew, okay, let's start setting up. So it's yeah, the uh, confidence too. Like this was your plan the whole time. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they didn't know. No, it was just me and Marty Rosenberg. We would huddle over into a corner and talk about it and then break and let's tell the crew what we're going to do. So yeah, they thought it was all part of a bigger plan, but it wasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, no, but, but I was confident in Marty. Marty knew what he was doing and, and he's shot plenty of films. So um, so yeah, and it was actually, was, uh, that was kind of the fun part of the day. Like the morning that was that rush of how are we going to shoot this? We have no storyboards. How are we going to do this? And it was, it was kind of fun, but not the best use of time when you have a full crew waiting for you. Yeah. But you guys obviously accomplished a great deal. Um, and just for my personal self, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but where did champions of sushi come from? 
So when I was writing the film, I was also tracking the sushi competitions and it was called Sushi Masters is the real competition. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a real sushi competition. Uh, so I, I went out to Sacramento because they were going to have one of the finalist competitions there. Uh, and this was done by the California Rice Commission. They would hold this every year. And so that was a regional competition in California. So I went out there to Sacramento to watch it and I videotaped it. Uh, just to get an idea and that was it was it was bigger it was it had stadium seating and there was a oh lot of God. people yeah and it was very exciting and that's what i wanted to replicate i wanted to make something like a rocky for sushi at the end but of course due to budget that had to get axed pretty quickly but yeah and the actual competitions themselves is very different than the one that i wrote the one that i wrote is just uh, it was it's complicated to write a, a food competition that you haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. So it was actually very complicated to write that it took a while, but the, the sushi masters competition, the real competition, uh, it, it wouldn't work on the big screen because all it is, it was these four guys and they would do one piece of artwork, one sushi platter. And that was it. So they, they would spend about 30 minutes each to create this, this beautiful, piece of artwork that you can eat and that just didn't wouldn't work uh, on the screen so uh, the great thing out of that was Tomoharu Nakamura who was the one who won the competition that I was videotaping uh, when it came time to to talk to people about the competition I looked him up and he worked in San Francisco and I nice. thought, wow, that's so, yeah, so fantastic. Cause the other ones were from LA, Sacramento and, but he was from San Francisco. So that was, that was great. So I called him up uh, long story short, you know, I met him in person and he eventually uh, said that he would help me design the sushi for the competition. And then I convinced him to actually be in the film. So the guy who wins in, in my film, is Tomoharu Nakamura, who's mm -hmm. actually a real, he's a, a real sushi champion. And I have to say those, those platters were amazing. Like we were just kind of like dumbfounded by what people, you know, what was presented. Uh, I don't want to actually give away I would, uh, what happens in case people haven't seen the, the um, movie yet, but just, all I have to say is Golden Gate Bridge. There you go. That's it. <laughs> so the Golden Gate Roll, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Did you know all along whether she was going to win or not? I think this she is a total spoiler alert, by the way. I, I didn't say whether she won, though. I said, did you know whether she would win or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, no, she was never going to win. She was never going to win. It was just too Hollywood. It was, and I wanted to avoid that. And I, for me, her getting into that competition was winning. I mean, it was amazing. Right? We have these three very skilled sushi chefs, sushi masters, and then she is, is thrown into this competition. And just in a, that in itself is a win. Uh, some people don't see it like that. Some people want her to win. And, and then she, you know, eventually does win in another way. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, so no, and at some point I remember when I was writing the screenplay and Vicki Wong, associate producer, helped me quite a bit uh, with the screenplay. I would just, I would 
write it and I would send it to her and she would edit it and give me notes and give it back to me. Uh, so she was sort of the, one of the script supervisors or she was a script supervisor on the film as well. But, uh, yeah, so, um, we would go round and round and I'm losing my thought. I don't just about winning or not. Yeah. I have to say that it, uh, we just recently saw Creed and, you know, I realized both in Rocky and in Creed and also in Eastside Sushi, there's the major competition where the protagonist doesn't win, conveniently leaving the uh, producers and writers open for a sequel. So um, any chance of a sequel? <laughs> no, that that wasn't. No, I wasn't trying to do that with Eastside Sushi, okay. although people people have asked for a sequel, but no, that was never my intent. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sorry. I wanted to go back to that last point when I, I lost my, my thought as I rambled on. Uh, when I was writing, I did have her come in last place at one point. And this was in the thick of writing when I was tired of Juana. I was tired of Eastside Sushi. I was tired of writing and rewriting. And I took that out on the character. And I, I was like, screw it. You're coming in last place now, Juana. That's it. I'm tired of you. And so she came in last place. And then Vicky Wong said, look, you're just upset at the character. Don't make her come in last place. I was like, all right, fine. So I then bumped her back up again. So, uh, but that, that happens. Yeah. I love that. You know, it's great. We saw it with our eight-year-olds, and um, and so they're in, in the theater, and they were and, and they were saying to me, "Is she going to win?" <laughs> kind of out loud. Um, and um, but you know, and it's it's kind of it's something they do all the time. And when we saw the Good Dinosaur, you know, the Pixar's latest one, and they're like, "Is is he going to die?" Right? They want to know. They still don't know the kind of um, rhythms of story well enough to know what's going to happen. And, and so I, and so, and so I was saying to them, well, I don't know if she's going to win. I think she's going to win, but I don't know if she's going to win. Right. And, and I love that she, I love that she didn't, you know, that, that, that she, she won in another way. Yeah. And she couldn't win. She, this was her first time jumping into that competition. She was not going to win that. And, uh, it's funny cause I'll, I'll be in the audience and I'll look at people's faces as the competition is going. And when she doesn't win, you can just see some people are so upset and, uh, and I find it, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy that because at least I know people are so into the film that when this happens, they're just deflated and upset. And so it, uh, to me, that's uh, it's a point. Speaking of, of watching your audience. Um, and I know we need to segue soon into our, we also have a question. Oh, okay. Let me just ask this quick question, which is, um, I think it's a quick question, but um, how much, what's the end process in terms of getting feedback and making changes once the film is, you know, once you've got your rough cut? Yeah, you have to, it's the same as showing it your screenplay to people. If you show it to 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different opinions and then you'll start chasing your tail. So you, you kind of have to choose the people wisely, right? Uh, so I had, I think, three test screenings before we were done and you have to choose people from all walks of life people that don't know anything about films but like to watch movies and then other people that are more technical so just to have a diverse crowd and for sure they, they i got uh input from everybody and you know sometimes you take their advice sometimes you don't it all depends on how you feel if I get the same input from two different people, then I have to look at that and say, okay, I got, I got to make that change. Um, but yeah, for sure. It's not, I, I don't feel that 
and I never feel like I am writing or making a film just for me. I, I don't want to do that. I want to make a film that I enjoy to make, but I want an audience to enjoy it because, you know, the audience are spending their time and their money to come and watch something that I made. I want to make it for them. I want them to enjoy it. So I am always keeping the audience in mind as well. Um, to a point, of course, you know, it's like, okay, I'm sure the audience wants her to win, but I'm not going to make that happen. So you, you kind of, uh, there's a balance to it, but overall I want the audience to, to be happy when they walk away from, from the theater. Yeah. That sounds like a good approach. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one of our viewers has a question, which is, what did you learn from the other movies that you've worked on? So that I probably include, I don't know exactly what you do, you do visual effects as well. Um, and yeah. you've done editing and um, so prior Star to- Wars. So outside of East Side Sushi, what, what, is, you know, what are some key uh, educational moments from other projects? So right, the, in my other life, I, worked quite a bit on these big budget visual effects films, big studio films, umbrella films. And so what you learn from that, so, so what happens is I would work on those films for long hours for many, many months. And I was very proud of the visual effects work that we did on it. It looked beautiful. But then when you go to the theater and you watch it, you figure out or you realize that, okay, the studio put more of the emphasis on the flash as opposed to the story and the characters. And, you know, you do that over and over and over. And I worked on so many films like that where, okay, we busted our butt again. And boy, this film is just not very good. Like all of these studio films that were coming out of Hollywood, they just sucked. And, you know, after a while I had to either stop complaining about it or do something about it. And that was, sort of what drove me to start writing Eastside Sushi, just to see if I could do it. It's like, okay, stop talking trash about these other films you're working on and do something about it. If you think you could do better, well then start writing one. And so I did. And when in Eastside Sushi, I wanted to make sure there was zero visual effects whatsoever. Something that just, something that just, uh, the emphasis so was on. you didn't CGI that sushi? I'm, I'm sorry. I was like, so that? you didn't CGI that sushi? Oh, it, it's all CGI. Yes. <laughs> no, the, there, there's actually a few visual effects shots in there, maybe 10 that you don't know are visual effects. But aside from that, it's just a film about characters and story. And, and that's all it was about. Yeah. Those good old fashioned elements. Yes. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I guess we're going to segue now into the final portion of our uh, podcast here. So um, it's called Steal This. And so basically it's based on the premise of T.S. Eliot's statement that amateur bar poets borrow and professional poets steal. So what have you come across in your reading or wandering or filmmaking that you've wanted to take to make your own? So Elizabeth, you start and model what we mean. All right. Well, um, you know, funnily enough, one of the things I, that I love that Anthony talked about here today is is about moving the pieces around to create that arc. And, and as I'm diving back into this book, that's one of the things I really 
see that I, that I'm kind of being able to break out of the little box that I got in about what, how this story looks and how it goes and to actually see, you know, how the scenes can be reordered for build. So, um, so I'm going to just steal that from Anthony right here and, <laughs> and dive back in and probably get those scenes on, on a few index cards and just, and shuffle a little bit. Cause I think that's in order or out mm, of order. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, index cards are hugely important, especially the edit suite. Uh, well, I could tell you about who I stole from, I guess, a little bit, or I, I, more so what inspired me for Ethan yeah. Sushi. Uh, there was a documentary called The King of Kong back, I think this came out in 2007, maybe. Uh, it's a story about this guy who wants to get the high score in Donkey Kong, the video game. And when I when I saw the ad for it and when I heard about it, I thought this is so lame. Why would I ever want to watch a film about a guy who wants to get the high score in Donkey Kong? And I disregarded it. But then I, I just happened to watch it uh, one day and it was amazing. It was this beautifully done film where this guy took this little seed, this little story and turned it into something much more bigger, much more epic than what it appeared to be. And so I wanted to do that. I wanted to write that. I wanted to write this little story uh, about this person who's in the back of a kitchen that we never acknowledge, that we never see, that we walk by this restaurant every day and we don't know the story that's going on in there. And I wanted to turn that into something more epic. So what may not seem like a big journey for somebody to become a chef was going to be huge for this person. And so I kind of stole that from, from the King of Kong. Mm, I love that. Uh, Angie, how about you? Something you want to steal this week? Um, well, actually, I'm kind of revisiting things. And one, I really, I loved that. I'm going to go check out The King of Kong. I was like on my list now. Um, I have just sort of been revisiting kind of what's important in writing. And so I'm actually going back way back uh, to uh, an old teacher of mine, Micheline Markham, who was really talking about writing about what's important. And I, I spent a, a number of months writing in passable mildly humorous, unchallenging screenplay, and it doesn't actually speak to things that matter to me. So um, that's why I'm doing a page one rewrite. And um, so what I'm stealing is just sort of getting back to telling the stories that matter for me. Nice. That's wonderful. And this has certainly been an inspiring conversation on, yeah. on that front. So, Anthony, um, thank you so much for coming. And can you tell people how they can find you and find Eastside Sushi? We're not really in theaters anymore. Uh, we, I think we're still at the New Parkway in Oakland. And in January, February, we may be in some more theaters. But in March, we'll be on DVD and I think iTunes. And But I... Don't quite know the exact date yet, so I, I can't say anything specific. But come March, you'll be able to watch it uh, on another platform. There's, there's a website called Eastside Sushi Film, right? There is yes, the website is EastsideSushiFilm.com, and a lot a lot of the info we get out is on Facebook. So it's Facebook forward slash Eastside Sushi, and we have Twitter and Instagram as well. But Facebook is is uh, the big one. Excellent. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to us. It was really, it was really a pleasure. Such a sure. pleasure. Thank you so much. Inspiring. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.